0: The Bob Murphy Show, Episode One On One. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now, here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey
0: everyone, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. Today, my guest is going to be economist Tim Terrell. Tim is an economics professor at Wofford College, where he's been since 2000. He's also a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. He is on the editorial staff of the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics and an associate editor of the Journal of Libertarian Studies, which has just been recently revived. And Tim and I talk about that near the end of this interview. He's got his PhD in economics from Auburn University and his BS and MA in economics from Clemson. What we talk about in this, interview are his main areas of professional expertise, namely the economics of health care and environmental economics. And so it, it's a really interesting interview if you're inclined to skip it because you're like, oh, yeah, I already know what the free market. But, I mean, I learned a bunch of stuff listening to Tim talk about you know his work, especially on the environmental stuff. Uh, and this is an area I've been working on for years. So it's great stuff. I think you're going to learn a lot Without further ado, here is my interview with Tim Terrell. Well, Tim, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show.
1: Glad to be here with you,
0: Bob. Let me just warn you and the listeners, there's people plowing outside, so you might hear some scraping. Uh, so, Tim, let me do as I often do with guests here, just give you a chance to explain, you know, you're, you're younger than some of the icons we've had on, but so how did you get into Austrian economics and libertarianism?
1: the first thing uh, that really got me interested in economics in general was when I had to do a paper in high school on something economics related and a family friend pointed me towards some uh, books, I think, including what has government done to our money by Rothbard and one or two other uh, shorter books, maybe something by Ron Paul on gold and money. And so,
0: so do you mean like, to- a, like an, an adult who is friends with your parents? Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I've, father uh, was a physician, but he was very interested in economic issues and actually a lot of other things too. So he would talk about a lot of this kind of thing with his with his friends. And uh, when he found out I was doing this paper, he put me in touch with one or two of them and they shoved some books in my direction. I ate them up. I really loved it. And when I went on to college, which would have been a year or two later, I intended to major in engineering mm-hmm. and minor in economics. And then that quickly changed into a major in economics. And ended up spending basically my life doing this kind of thing. Um, I branched out instead of just being interested in in monetary issues. In grad school, my interest turned to environmental issues and some other things. So uh, it's been really interesting. I'm very happy with my life decision based on that little, little turn in the road that, that happened in high school.
0: Well, I, if you can spend a minute. So at what point, like you were interested in engineering in high school and then you went to college thinking that's what you're going to major in or?
1: Yeah, it was kind of a, I had a couple of family members who were engineers, and I figured, well, I'm not really sure I want to do this, but I know there's some good job opportunities in engineering.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of, like, did you know, like civil engineering versus? Civil engineering okay. or
1: mechanical, something like that. I went to a uh, an A&M type school, went to Clemson, mm-hmm. and um, engineering was a big, big deal there. Um, had, again, so I had family. if and when sure. we
0: achieve anarchy, you can be the one who builds the roads.
1: No, you don't want that. You, you really don't want that. Uh, <laughs> that would be a mm-hmm. huge mistake. Well, joking I aside,
0: up, I mean, I, you, I don't know if you know that Roger Garrison had an engineering background. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. and then he went
1: and hit his. Actually, there's a lot of connections between mm-hmm. engineering and economics. If you go back to some of the marginal revolution economists. They were sometimes they were engineers. and They were looking at marginal decisions. Like one of them was a railroad engineer mm-hmm. thinking about you know. Does it make sense for us to go one more mile with this railroad line? It's an engineering question, but it's really an economics question too.
0: Right, right. Uh, I'm I'm probably going to botch the, the quote or, or the anecdote, but I remember Roger Garrison talking about that. He said something along the lines of that his engineering helps him, or the background he had in that helps him in like capital theory and stuff that for one thing, engineers make sure, you know, if there's an equation that the units match up. Yeah. Stuff like yeah. that. And it's really, you know, when he said that, I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Cause I, I thought I was going to go into physics when I was young, yeah. younger. And so that similar thing that, you know, in physics, you got to make sure the units line up and little things like, as you know, Tim, in capital interest theory in the Austrian school, like one of the critiques is with, uh, you know, the, the productivity of capital versus an interest rate and how the way a lot of times those diagrams are drawn in a mainstream textbook, the units don't even work. The dimensions right. are wrong.
1: So yeah, 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 right. So, yeah, I mean, and the other thing, too, is is I figured I could always transfer that math course that you take in engineering into any other major. It's mm-hmm. the hardest math course you take. So uh, it was it was kind of a safe option for me, but it w- didn't take them long to figure out that I really loved economics more. So,
0: OK. Uh, so did you when you thought about economics, like you knew I'm going to have to be an economics professor or it was just I got to do economics. I don't care what I do with it.
1: Exactly. It was kind of I I love the subject. I'll figure out what I want to do with it later. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was not really until my senior year of my undergrad that I started thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe I'm not done with this yet. And uh, at that point, I I looked at some of the jobs that people were taking with their bachelor's degree in economics, and I thought, well, you know, they're going into banking and finance, and that that's fine. But I won't get to do what I'm doing now if I go that direction. So you know, I, I I love teaching economics. They have to pay me to grade papers, but I love teaching. Mm -hmm. And getting to to spend a life that is, basically, I get to read what I love. I get to teach what I love. And that's really made it rewarding.
0: Yeah. And I should also say, too, because I didn't, for some reason, I didn't realize this, that I thought if you got a PhD in economics, the only thing you could do was be a college professor. And at least within the last 20 years, that's not true, there's tons of stuff you can do. And I don't just Which mean, good. yeah, and I don't just mean <laughs> because, like going and working for yeah. an investment bank or something, but even, you know, there's think tanks and and stuff like that too, that you don't need to have a PhD, but if you have one, that certainly makes you more marketable. So. Uh,
1: right. For, and higher education is in such turmoil yeah. right now that it's really good to have some other options other than traditional higher ed.
0: I actually haven't been keeping tabs on that Um, because even when I was a Texas Tech, you know, I, I wasn't so much directly shepherding students to go get a, a job. So, you know, other faculty were doing that. Can you speak, just since we brought it up, like somebody who's, let's say, uh, in high school right now who loves Mises.org and they, you know, they love the Mises Institute. They watch that stuff on YouTube. Do, do you have any words of wisdom about yes. career decisions?
1: So right now I'm I'm reading most of the way through Richard Vetter's book that came out last year uh, called Restoring the Promise.
0: Yeah, we had him on for the, the show yeah go ahead
1: oh great yeah. great yeah so i mean the book is fantastic i'm sure you um, you know can direct your listeners back to the back to that podcast but it was it that's the kind of thing i would recommend somebody that's considering going into higher education needs to read that book first and it might give you a sense of mission to correct some of the problems that are in higher education but you need to know that it's an uphill struggle right now it's really difficult uh, a lot of jobs that people are getting are not with their PhD are not, you know, tenure track type jobs. Sometimes people get stuck doing basically a lot of uh, adjunct type work. Some people are okay with that. Some people don't find that very satisfying. I just came back a couple of weeks ago from the, the national conference, international conference, really, for economists in San Diego. And so I'm out there, I'm interviewing uh, brand new or almost graduated PhDs and looking for people to to fill some positions. We've got and, you know, it's not a market that I would really want to be in right now. It just seems You're very. You're making diff- my
0: stomach like turn over just saying that conference. Cause I remember when I was going on the market and you go out there and, you know, you send yeah. out dozens of applications and you get a couple interviews and you go in there. And <laughs> my dissertation, Tim, was on Bombaverkian capital theory and the history of economic thought. Can you imagine me in a hotel room trying to? tell them they're just like, what is this guy even talking about?
1: <laughs> right, I mean, it's it's just this, the kind of thing where I, I hope that those who are interested in Mises.org and some of the other kind of um, market-oriented uh, work that's being done out there are wanting to go forward with this type of career. But at the same time, you need to go in with your eyes open, aware of what's out there and what uh, the challenges are gonna be.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me mention, I don't wanna give the false a false impression here, being an Austrian right now is way less of a handicap than than it has ever been, I would say. So yeah, it's it's not that you're saying, Oh yeah, if you're an Austrian, there's no hope. It's just you're saying in general the PhD there's a glut in right. PhDs.
1: This this is just I think it's 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 um it's tough all over. It's probably easier now to be an Austrian economist than it would have been certainly than it would have been you know 25 30 years ago mm-hmm. and uh, I just realized this is my 20th year at Wofford College where I teach mm-hmm. and um, it's so much easier now to find people who are aware of what that means what Austrian economics means and to find graduate programs or undergraduate programs where there's at least somebody there that you can work with who's familiar with the Austrian method and, and, and emphasis and That kind of thing makes it a lot easier, I think. Not that it's easy, Mm -hmm. but it's um, it's easier now than it was. Yeah,
0: let me just officially say for younger listeners, um, Walter Block has compiled this list that he's constantly updating of programs that are either like have an explicit Austrian focus, like the department does, and you can major in Austrian or not major, but like you know take courses in quote Austrian economic. Or, oh, there's a faculty member that's an Austrian or they're sympathetic. You know, the guy who teaches micro might give you a Rothbard on the side. So anyway, for people who are interested, uh, contact Walter Block. He has that right. list And it. So, yeah, as time passes, more and more of us are getting beachheads at various places. So it's I want to clarify it w- what you're saying about me. Think about what you're doing, even a, someone who was interested in the work of Paul Samuelson and was going to go into the glorious neoclassical economics there would also be this issue of, geez, it's, there's, it's going to be hard to get a tenure-track job at a good school. Right, right. So uh, why don't we move on then to some of your stuff. I prompted you to remind you that I saw you give a talk at the Mises Institute on healthcare issues. So I, I know that's not your, your focus currently, but if we could just hit some of this while, we're, while it's fresh in my mind. And so in particular, when it comes to the debate over single-payer or whatnot, you'll hear it bandied about to say, oh, look at this. The U.S. by far spends the most on earth in terms of health care expenditures. But when you look at various health outcomes, it's not near the top of the pack by any stretch. And, you know, certain statistics like life expectancy or you know, infant mortality, things like that, it's, it actually does a lot worse than, you know, OECD countries or whatever. And so it looks like, oh, we're spent all this money, we're not even getting anything for it. So, And you pointed out some some problems with that conventional reporting.
1: Right. So there's a couple of problems with that kind of narrative. Uh, one is that a lot of times when you see people making that kind of argument that the United States spends a lot, but we don't get a lot of health out- outcomes for our money, a lot of times that's a an effort to say, well, see, market-based Medical care doesn't work. Uh, we don't need to move away from free markets and medical care and not toward them. Look how great Western European countries are doing with their state-run medical systems or or uh, Canada, for example. We're always comparing ourselves to these countries. But the United States does not have a free market medical care system. I mean, in some respects, it's more market-oriented than a lot of other countries, and that's that's fine. But we're it's a false comparison sometimes between, you know, the statist uh, Western Europeans or Canadians and the, and the market oriented United States. And that's actually, there's been some convergence. It's really interesting, some convergence, uh, whereas the United States is moving more and more, it seems toward state involvement or government involvement in medical care. Some of these other countries that we see as kind of icons of socialist medical care are moving the other direction. Mm -hmm. So we have, the Swedish government, for example, which has been aggressively introducing market forces into healthcare to improve access and quality and choice. And over a quarter of Swedish primary healthcare clinics are now run by the private sector. Um, municipality governments in Sweden have increased spending on private care contracts by 50% over a, about a 10 year period. So there's a, even if in the United States, we're maybe some of us are discouraged by the seeming inevitable trend toward government involvement in medical care. That's not a global trend, and I think we're seeing some positive things happening in other countries. I would say the other part of the problem with that kind of narrative about the cost benefit of U.S. medical care is that the measurements of outcomes are often messed up. We're, we're not seeing comparisons of apples to apples here. And a lot of it has to do with things like how we measure infant mortality rates, which of course would have a big impact, an outsized impact on your life expectancy figures. So if you're not counting a bunch of uh, individuals who are basically a zero or a one or something into your into your uh, mortality rates, then you're going to elevate your overall life expectancy figures. So there's a lot there in in how Uh, do you count a child that lived just a few hours past birth? Do you count a child that lived a few weeks? Um, How do you count premature infants? And we think of those statistical kind of problems as being a disparity between, say, a less developed country and and an OECD country, and that's not the case. I mean, we see those kind of problems that can produce massive differences in how we count mortality, even between countries like the United States, Britain, France, Spain, these are countries that are in the same kind of economic range, but we're seeing significant differences in how they count uh, mortality rates. And generally, those differences work against the numbers for the United States. It makes us look worse than we actually are.
0: Okay, so just to paraphrase that last point to make sure the listeners get that. Cause yeah, that was one of the things you mentioned in your talk that I was like, Oh wow, that's, that's huge. That, you know, <laughs> big, if true. So it's generally speaking, the way that these things are, are recorded in the United States, a baby's born, boom, the clock starts running period. What, you know, whether they're in the ICU and you know, they're on life support right from the beginning, you know, they could be severely premature, that's counted as a you know if it's live birth the clock's running and then if the baby only lives a few hours okay so in the overall life expectancy calculations that person went in with you know two days worth of life and that so that's going to bring down the average whereas in a lot of other countries and not just you know, quote third world countries but even some ones that you might be saying ah they got single payer or universal coverage over there in Spain or something that they might not calculate it like that. Like you, the baby might have to live a certain time before they even count as a live birth, for example.
1: Right, exactly. And and that's, that's certainly the, the case in several countries. Like if you look at Belgium or France or Spain, they register as a live birth only infants that survive for a specified period of time. So deaths before that period elapses aren't counted as deaths. They would have been counted in the United States. And the United States tends to be pretty aggressive with trying to save the lives of, of premature infants, about half of all infant mortality occurs in the first 24 hours after birth. So, if you're if you're excluding from your count uh, children that die early, then you're really going to skew the statistics more than you might expect. And in fact, one study in a British medical journal, Wilco Grothman's and some co-authors, uh, pointed out that the terminology differences alone in some highly developed countries can cause infant mortality rates to vary by f- anywhere from 14 to 40% and reported infant mortality rates can be about 17% off which is to my mind pretty significant uh, also there there seems to be more preterm births in the united states so We have more children who are vulnerable to uh, infant mortality, and that's not necessarily a medical system kind of Mm -hmm. problem. There are so many variables that go into what will cause a child to be born premature, and uh, to lay that at the feet of the medical profession and say, well, see, this is because U.S. medical care is not so good, That's uh, that's not really fair. If you correct for The percentage of premature births in the United States and low birth weight, then the United States comes out looking a whole lot better. I mean, a few years ago, you were seeing the United States ranked like number 41 or something among nations for infant mortality. And once you start narrowing down what's really relevant for medical care, as opposed to other factors, demographic factors and diet, Mm -hmm. uh, maternal diet and so forth, you really begin to see we're not as bad as this these statistics make us look sometimes
0: right so i mean just to pick an exaggerated example not that this is representative of the whole phenomenon but like if the mom is you know using cocaine regularly while pregnant that's not because oh gee this capitalist system she couldn't go see her OBGYN to tell her you know you should stop using cocaine whereas if she had been in sweden where they they would have told her that she, you know what i mean so it's yeah, you, you, could, you can lament and say, what is it about the United States that makes that more prevalent, that type of behavior among pregnant women? But it, it's not because we'd lack universal coverage in healthcare.
1: Right. Yeah, to draw an analogy, people in the United States tend to drive more than in some other countries. And we have more car accidents. Uh, so to say, well, you know, people are dying of car accidents. That's the fault of the American medical care system. Of course, that's not going to be really a fair comparison, but you're mm-hmm. more likely to get into an accident in the first place in the United States. So mm-hmm. there's so many things that, that really are – once you start digging into the numbers, you begin to realize how unfair some of these, these uh, kinds of statements mm-hmm. are and, and how sometimes I think uh, there's an effort to push an agenda without really paying very close attention to, to mm-hmm. the fair reading of those, of those numbers.
0: Yeah, I read something and I realized this sounds like not, not this almost sounds like a satire, but I mean, it's sincere that to say, you know, if you adjust for the car accidents and gunshots, US healthcare is actually pretty good, you know, or the, the mortality, <laughs> you know what I mean? In other words, it, and so that at first that sounds like some, you know, out of a Dickens novel or something like, you know, some capitalist stooge trying to make excuses for their horrible. But on the other hand, when you stop and think about it, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, Maybe there's something wrong about U.S. culture, but for guns or whatever, but it, it's not the fault of a capital, you know, quote, capitalist free market system and health care that if somebody shoots you, you're going to be more likely to die than if you're in a country where you're not likely to get shot. So, yeah, yeah. And the other thing, like I've seen people point out, too, that Americans tend to be more obese than, you know, people in, in Europe. And so that's another factor in terms of, geez, how come they have all these problems with heart health and whatnot?
1: Right. So, I mean, we we certainly diet, exercise, lethargy or uh, our our occupations, the kinds of things that we we do on a daily basis have a lot to do with our health. And that's one of the reasons that when I write and talk about this to my students, I tend to say medical care system instead of health care system, because that's targeting the, uh, the doctors, the hospitals, and so forth. When I say healthcare, there's so many things you can do to take care of sure. your health that right. don't have anything to do with the medical profession at all, don't have anything to do with pharmacies or or, or any of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Also, Tuya, you mentioned uh, the expenditures. It's, I think this is still true, or, you know, it was roughly true, I think a couple of years ago that I was, was doing a paper or something that was comparing Canada to the United States. And in terms of, the, you know, the spending, it's not so much, that the Canadian government spent more on health care than the U.S. government. It was, there was roughly, in terms of percentage of GDP, that was roughly the same. And it was just the U.S. also had all the private spending on top of it. So that, you know what I mean? It, so it, it it didn't make sense to say, oh yeah, the reason the U.S. system is bad. If, in other words, if you were a Canadian who loved your Canadian health care, oh, I don't want that Wild West U.S. system That was a little bit weird because it's like, no, the U.S. government at at all levels spends roughly the same share of the economy. So clearly that's not what's driving the difference.
1: Yeah, well, a a lot of the gap between our spending in the U.S. and the spending in other countries occurred decades ago, in the 1980s in particular. And if you look at the growth rate in medical spending in the United States compared to countries like Canada or Britain, which we're always trying to compare ourselves to, That gap is not as high, has not been as high. In fact, uh, from what I was looking at on something yesterday on this, uh, the growth rate in the U.S. of Medicare expenses has been slower than in some of these countries we're comparing ourselves to in the last decade or so. So if you had a a big gap that appeared 30 years ago and you've been adding to that at a slower and slower rate, even at a negative rate, you're still going to see a pretty sizable uh, spending gap. But the other thing to think about here, I think, is what are you getting for your money? I mean, yeah, so if we're spending more on medical care, but we're getting more for that, and again, if you, if you look at something like life expectancy statistics and you're comparing apples to oranges, that's one thing. We've talked about that. But there have been some studies that indicate that when it comes to something like cancer treatment, we're actually getting a lot for our money. Uh, if you look at survival rates on cancer, uh, survival benefits to U.S. patients, One study from 2012 in the Journal of Urology in the United States said that we're getting benefits to U.S. patients that more than justify the added costs in that area. Part of what's going on is an unjustified level of expense on some things. Mm -hmm. But in other areas, we're seeing a very justified level of expense. Maybe this has to do with the fact that, you know, You've got subsidies that are headed, that are pushing our medical expenses up in some areas, whereas in other areas we're seeing maybe the private sector is driving some expenses, but they're justifiable, giving us the kind of benefits that we're we're hoping we're getting from those from those uh, procedures and those medications and and so forth.
0: Yeah, and it's and you alluded to this a few minutes ago when we started started on this topic that. Clearly, you know, I'm not saying, ah, US healthcare is great. Go free market. Like the US healthcare system is really screwy. I mean, just with my family, I've been going to, you know, ER visits, you know, the last few months. And it's just astonishing to me. We'll be sitting around in the other, you know, the guy, people out on the floor, like they don't even know why we're in the room. And they come into, you know, and I'll go say, Hey, we're here because of XYZ. And like, oh geez, we didn't know that. You know, I mean, just boneheaded yeah. bureaucratic. And so whatever it is driving that, I don't think the answer. It's because oh, the, the state's not heavily involved enough, and that's what's gonna you know call, you know fix these problems. That to me, it's more like they need to run this like a business, and it's not being run like a business right now. That I'm not the customer, you know. Somebody else is paying for this stuff. We don't even know what the prices are. We go, you know, what, what other business do you go and get the product, and then later they tell you how much it costs. I mean, that's exactly. Crazy.
1: It's it's like you know you have to buy it to find out how much it costs. So it's. The bureaucratic kind of layers of paperwork where you can't even get a straight answer from the person behind the desk that you're asking Mm -hmm. about this procedure. The person at the hospital can't even tell you what something's going to cost. And it's hugely frustrating for caregivers. It's frustrating for patients. It's understandable, I think, that somebody might say, well, wouldn't it be simpler if we could just sweep all of this paperwork off the table and have the government pay for everything I don't think that, that's not the answer. That's 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 a, a kind of a, a false road to go down. Is not going to help avoid those kinds of problems. It'll make them worse, if anything. But um, it's understandable why people are frustrated. It's a it's a terrible system to have to get enmeshed in. I've had family members who've gotten into this uh, with some kind of chronic illness, and they're just frustrated to no end with the kind of problems that that we've got from this. You know. It's, it's not even a rational system in, in some ways. Governments' subsidies, governments' mandates, uh, the regulations that we see. I mean, we can talk about this endlessly, the, the certificate of need laws and that kind of thing that create monopolies. Pharmaceutical companies that have essentially monopolies on their drugs. We see drug prices going up because of these uh, restrictions on competition That's the kind of thing we need to be addressing to try to bring costs down and make things less frustrating. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So, by the way, folks, for listeners, um, my book, The Primal Prescription, that I co-authored with uh, ER doctor Doug McGuff, gives a history of this, you know, how did the U.S. get to where they were, you know, right before the uh, Affordable Care Act and all that stuff. So, yeah, touching on a lot of these issues to show, yeah, it, it wasn't that we had a free market in healthcare as of 2007 and then Obama came in and screwed it up. That's not at all what was going on. Right. So I know, Tim, why don't we switch gears here that more of your your recent work now is, is more in terms of environmental economics. So do you maybe want to talk about that broad field and then what specifically you've been doing there?
1: Yeah, I got into environmental economics in grad school partly because I saw this as one of the biggest challenges to markets and free market policy. So I looked at regulation, environmental regulation, and I was trying to figure out how do we solve environmental problems, and what's the role of government, if any, in this? And it was a it was a kind of a, a fascinating thing to start discovering that regulation is not something that government creates with the public interest in mind. That uh, oh, we see a government, we or we see an environmental problem. Now let's task you know the EPA or something with trying to solve that problem with uh, appropriate regulation to limit. Emissions, or uh, restrict the way that you dispose of waste in some way, and it was eye-opening for me to begin to realize that a lot of the regulations that we have on the environment, or or supposedly for the for the benefit of the environment, are actually for the benefit of the polluters. That they're there in order to create a barrier to entry. They're there in order to create uh, economic rents, or essentially create extra profits for firms which are able to use this regulation to keep their competitors out. So uh, a a really expensive environmental mandate might be perfectly fine for a firm as long as they recognize they can take on those costs better than their potential competition can. And so that was really eye-opening for me to be able to, to see that environmental regulation is sometimes motivated by something totally different than what we what we expect, and then it often backfires. It often makes things worse rather than better.
0: And then I started. Can, looking, can I stop you, John? Yep, that, so sure. I've that's this is fascinating to me too because I've heard that general thesis in other areas, like um, you know Sarbanes Oxley, and oh yeah, the big accounting firms. They wanted those layers of regulation because that would keep their competitors out. You know, they got teams of lawyers and stuff to comply with. Um, but I I actually have never heard that. What I had heard it in context was things like, "Oh, the reason Exxon now is for a carbon tax is because they bought a bunch of natural gas operations, and, and you know they just that's going to help them." That kind of thing. But are you saying? It sounds like you're saying something more fundamental than that.
1: Yeah. So it's a uh, it it goes across the board. I mean, part mm-hmm. of that is yeah. If you've got an oil company and they start becoming more of a gas company, natural gas reserves, and they recognize that their big competition is say, coal then coal is a is going to be a more of a carbon emitter than natural gas. So you recognize that you've got an advantage if you can get the government to start hammering the coal industry. Mm-hmm. And this is not to you know, defend carbon emissions per se. It's just to say, look, I mean, the purpose of some of these regulations may be to um, prevent competition rather than to kind of promote some kind of environmental quality.
0: So can I ask you, was this something like, did you read people in grad school arguing that or did you on your own like have an epiphany and say, wait a minute?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. no. So several years ago at uh, Amisa's conference, we had Bruce Yandel in to give one of the, one of the keynote lectures. Mm-hmm. And Yandel was one of my professors when I was a student at Clemson. I uh, did my master's there, and then when I went to Auburn for my PhD, he agreed to serve on my committee uh, for my dissertation, which was on environmental regulation. So a lot of what I picked up on this came from Bruce Handel. He's famous for his bootleggers and Baptists theory, which says essentially that you've got one group that may care about profits or rent-seeking and trying to restrict entry, and they ally themselves with another group that may have more of a moral purpose to their to their agenda. So he he's not talking literally about Baptists necessarily, but it's just, if you've got a moral- well, well, can
0: you explain to just historically, he's referring to alcohol prohibition.
1: Yes, yes. So the, the, the initial idea or, or allegory here was that if you have prohibition on alcohol, the bootleggers are gonna favor this because that means that instead of going to some kind of licensed- regular, you know, alcohol store, they're going to have to go up the mountainside to the bootleggers and uh, that's where they get their alcohol. So if you legalize sales of alcohol, then the illegal providers go out of business. So they, right. they want alcohol to remain illegal. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you got people who are kind of maybe for religious reasons, they object to people selling uh, alcohol or drinking alcohol. So they're going to be on the same side as the bootleggers uh, because they both want the legal alcohol sales shut down.
0: Right. So for the alliteration, it's called Baptist and bootleggers. Right. Like who would, the team, the, the coalition that opposes the removal of alcohol prohibition.
1: Right. And and you still see that today, even yeah. with alcohol regulation. Uh, you know, it, state by state, you see different rules, but you see where, for example, in, in my state, in South Carolina, grocery stores cannot sell liquor. Uh, you have to go to a designated store, and even the architecture of these stores is, is partly dictated by the regulation. It's, it's kind of crazy. So uh, who, who wants the grocery stores banned from selling alcohol? Well, you might have some people who are, again, kind of morally motivated there. and You might have also the liquor stores that don't want the competition from mm-hmm. the grocery stores. But you see a lot of this with environmental regulation as well. Huge, huge amounts of environmental regulation fit into this kind of framework.
0: Right yeah like like we were saying a minute ago like I kn- I know there were a lot of natural gas companies that all of a sudden saw the light on climate change and they were you know maybe we should have a carbon tax and like you said because they realized that's going to you know hit coal it's it's not that just you know wind power or solar power is going to sweep the nation if you have a heavy carbon tax at least for the next 10 20 years it's going to be natural gas that's going to benefit from that so that's why all of a sudden we understand the consensus now
1: <laughs> Right right yeah. So if, if you're if you're wanting to to uh, reduce your carbon emissions, then it's not going to be a move from coal to solar for a number of reasons. It's going to be a move from coal to, say, natural gas and the natural gas the oil companies recognize that's that's the logical next step mm. is is uh, is natural gas.
0: So in your dissertation, you know, your early work, like were you looking at historical regulations and then, you know, doing like economic history?
1: Uh, To some extent, uh, part of what I was doing then was looking at how much environmental regulatory enforcement by the EPA affected the way these kinds of regulations stick. So it doesn't do any good, for example, to make a regulation if the courts aren't going to enforce it. So my dissertation, which is like a lot of dissertations probably been read by my committee and maybe two other people, one of (laughs) whom is my mom, maybe. I mean, that... (laughs) that's my my dissertation was mostly about how does the Supreme Court uh, cause environmental enforcement to be either stronger or weaker and therefore influence how much of this kind of bootlegger and Baptist stuff is going on behind the scenes. But uh, part of, in, in between a lot of that, I, I provided some examples, one of which was back in the 1980s, there was a new environmental regulation that said you have to burn toxic waste. You have to incinerate it. Mm-hmm. Okay, So this spawned a, an entirely new industry intended only to satisfy that regulation, to incinerate toxic waste, a lot of which is flammable, you know, like paint thinners and stuff like that. In, so, in the,
0: the ostensible rationale being, oh, because you don't want to bury it because then it's going to seep into groundwater or... Kids are going right. to play on it or
1: something? Yeah, okay. Right, rather than bury the stuff in barrels, we burn it, it turns into something that's relatively innocuous and we mm-hmm. just go on about our business. So one of the interesting kind of things is that I, I found that there were firms that made cement that had furnaces that burned or heated up the ingredients to cement to something like, I don't know, four or 5,000 degrees or something like that. And they thought, you know, we've already got this incinerator, essentially. All we got to do is pipe in some of this... Uh, you know, paint thinners and whatever other toxic waste. And we'll get paid like $100 a ton to do this. And the incinerators are charging like $300 a ton to do this. We can do this on the side, make piles of money and uh, you know, satisfy the requirements of the regulation. And the incinerator industry, of course, thought you know, we're, we're going to go bankrupt in a matter of, of a few months or years if this continues. So they managed to fund grassroots environmental organizations that would go around suing the cement kilns for burning toxic waste. And so it was a, you know, you have this little group of environmentalists. They're really concerned about the environment and they they want to do, uh, you know, the right thing for the environment. So all of a sudden they've got this massive incinerator industry shoveling money in their direction to go file lawsuits. And that got exposed in court, it came out some documents that this is something that was uh, actually being done to try to preserve the incinerator industry rather than doing anything for the environment. the The environmental effect was about the same regardless of who burned the uh, the, the waste.
0: Well, this is fascinating. We could pursue this for a minute. So, and I, you know, I, to, to the extent that you you know any of these details. So, is the idea that like the actual rank and file environmental activist? who was filing the lawsuit or who was a staffer, one of these think tanks or whatever, these grassroots organizations, were they really getting up in the morning and thinking I'm fighting big, big business and its efforts to despoil planet Earth? Or did they know full well what they were doing?
1: I think it's probably that they feel like they're at least able to shut down one part of an industry that they view as harmful. Okay, And if they have to, you know, slightly curve or bend their efforts toward this direction rather than that direction. Well, maybe they can go after the incinerators later, mm-hmm. but right now at least they're they're figuring I'm being able to shut down the cement kilns. I'm doing something good here. So it's it's interesting how the direction of these groups, I mean we we can come up with these kind of rationales sure. for our behavior in all kinds of ways, and I'm sure that the environmentalist organizations are saying, "Well, it's not the tack we would prefer to take, but at least we can do a lot more with this money that's being donated to us by the incinerators. We just won't ask too many questions about it. We'll get a lot of, um, we'll get a lot accomplished to try to stop the incineration of of, of toxic waste.
0: And and this fascinates me because of course, you know, I've done work, for think tanks on energy issues, carbon. And so the standard, Oh, they're in the pay of big oil. And it, it's like, well, no, for one thing, big oil is actually for a carbon tax. <laughs> you know? right, right. So there's that, there's that element, you know, at best it's medium oil, but beyond that, it's, you know, of course, you know, what, what would you, you say? Well, no, I'm doing my work and you know, I do it and I believe the stuff I'm saying and, you know, check, check what I'm. And so I could see how, yeah, an environmental activist might say the same thing. Like I don't care where our money comes from. I'm doing good stuff, but, One could also, you know, step back and say, so, yeah, it's not just that the, quote, pro-industry think tanks are the ones that are being funded by, it's also these alleged, you know, progressive outlets that are also being funded by, for example, billionaires writing checks for left so-called left-wing causes. And it's not because the left-wing billionaires, and I don't just mean George Soros, there's plenty of other ones, too. Sure. It's not you know, the oh they're they're the good billionaires and it's like, well, people have their agendas and the political thing. And so it's it's interesting that it's, you know, in from a leftist point of view, oh no, it's the it's the ones on the right. Those are the ones that are corrupt because they're taking money from billionaires, but this is more pervasive than just a, a left-right issue.
1: Oh sure it is. Yeah. And that's one of the things I started to see is that this is business industries on that, that will fund whichever left or right group they feel like is going to allow them to continue with that kind of rent-seeking behavior.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, can you think of any other paradigmatic examples of, of this bootle- bootlegger-Baptist thing?
1: Yeah, so one more recent than the one from decades ago. Uh, a few years ago, there was a, a shift toward alternatives to the incandescent Edison-style light bulb, mm-hmm. right? So instead of, of tungsten filament, we started to see um, compact fluorescent light bulbs or CFLs, and we started to see the LED light bulbs, and they're pretty common now. They're a lot cheaper than they used to be, and and I've got a number of them in my, in my home. Um, they're a lot more expensive, per bulb, but of course they last longer and, mm. and so forth. Anyway, you use less electricity so your electric bill goes down. So there are a lot of advantages to these things, but one of the things we saw early on is that companies like GE that made uh, light bulbs recognized that they had lost a lot of market share in incandescents. So um, they, they were not making as much money on incandescents as they used to, but they would have a larger market share in the alternatives, the compact fluorescence and so forth. So these companies that made light bulbs started to lobby for what was sometimes called an incandescent light bulb ban uh, to basically encourage more and more people to use the type of bulb in which they had a relative advantage. And uh, I, I, I read that as a kind of a, a bootleggers and Baptist sure. kind of story. So
0: let me ask, can you speak to, I, cause I can imagine someone listening to this, probably not my typical listener, but someone who's a progressive saying, okay, yeah. Given that there are these forces for regulation, of course, in practice, big business is going to come in and try to, you know, get a seat at the table and to influence But, you know, this guy, Tim Terrell is making it sound like the whole motivation for like, why is there the EPA in the first place is because of some company dreaming it. When no, this was, you know, the people demanded they could see the, you know, the the problems, the the toxic waste or whatever, hurting the environment. And so whether big business was involved or not, clearly our democratic society was going to have responsible regulation to rein in the, the excesses of business. And yeah, in practice, business is going to get in there and write checks and and lobby. But this idea that the regulations were generated by business or so, that was the rationale. Come on, you're overselling your case.
1: Yeah. So um, I think I I see this from from students and others that I talk to quite a bit where they have a kind of a, a, a false alternative. It's either environmental depredation, pollution, we all wind up in, you know, Wally, uh, kind of, kind of yeah. planet,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or we have government regulation a lot, EPA and, and and so forth. And there's actually, th- those are not the only two alternatives, right? So uh, one of the things that I try to point out is that there has been for many, many years an alternative to uh, kind of top-down command and control regulation, which is the court system. So uh, a lot of this depends on people recognizing property rights. So if you uh, throw trash into my yard and you do this routinely, I'm going to say, you know, you got to stop. That's, that's a nuisance. And if you don't stop, I'll take you to court for it. So um, if I'm accustomed to breathing clean air and all of a sudden somebody parks something next to me that's polluting my air, then I might have a court case against you. I don't have to go to the EPA and try to get some mm-hmm. kind of one-size-fits-all regulation. It's so many parts per million of particulates or whatever that supposedly is going to fit everybody's uh, optimal balance between uh, clean air and the need for for industry. I mean, we've got all kinds of precedents for court cases that um, where the, the victim of the pollution is able to Take the polluter to court and accomplish at least some kind of restraint on that pollution. You can Mm -hmm. use tort law and nuisance law to try to uh, restrain pollution without trying to get the government to impose this um, this limitation. That's more or less pulled out of the air. It's it's not a um, it's not a an efficient solution in any sense. Even if we were concerned with efficiency instead of preserving property rights.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you bring it up because I just recently wrapped up, um, I was doing a study for the Fraser Institute on whether fracking is safe. And even that's kind of a, a misleading, you know, because there's different. There's no thing as safe or unsafe. It's, you know, different degrees, risks involved. Right. And you know, I was reviewing the literature on various things, you know, methane emissions, does groundwater content. And that's one of the points I made that people are like wanting to say, oh, sh- should the government ban it or should these, and then say, like, well, let's say it does turn out that a company coming in and doing these things, with, you know, with the salt water injections, and that leads to problems. You you could take them to court. You know, it's it, why why does it have to be that? Oh, if it's if it's deemed, yeah, this is unsafe. Therefore, the government, certainly the high, you know, centralized government, needs to go lay regulations or, or prohibitions that affect the whole jurisdiction. It's not obvious that that's necessarily the case. That if some, you know, if you can use the literature and show, yep, this really is demonstrating a harm, then what you couldn't take them to court, couldn't you?
1: Well, and, and one of the responses that I sometimes hear to this kind of argument about using courts instead of regulation is that, well, you know, court the court battle is after the fact. You've already suffered the damage, and that's when you take somebody to court. And so it doesn't prevent anything, which is completely false. I mean, we take actions all the time to avoid liability, and large firms do this. They don't want to incur a an expensive court battle from emitting some kind of pollution. So what they'll do is they'll take steps to rein in their own emissions or whatever other nuisance they're creating in order to avoid those those lawsuits. They don't want to wind up in court. And so it mm-hmm. is preventative. It is going to reduce pollution.
0: What's funny too, by that same logic, you could just prove that fining polluters doesn't do anything because it's already happened. So why fine sure. them?
1: Yeah. Right, right. So <laughs> exactly. I mean, you could use the same logic to say, well, you know, the EPA is pursuing all these enforcement actions on people who have already polluted so Mm. it but nevertheless i still hear that kind of logically inconsistent argument all the time that you know court court battles are are after the fact and therefore they don't really stop anything
0: now in in more fairness i suppose to that thing but to, to tie to i know what rothbard's you know arguments were ironically you could argue from a libertarian perspective that the you know big business or whoever has intervened and the court system is in the pocket of big business, you know, so that, in other words, proving that it's going to the government's not a good idea in other way, right? So it's, you shouldn't blame, it's not that, oh, geez, all along there was markets and we had a really tiny government back in the day. And that's why there's all this big pollution. Just go read Charles Dickens, see how awful it was. And then over time, the government got more and more progressive and responsible. You know, Rothbard's version that, yeah, it used to be somebody's dumping something in the river, the homeowner downstream could get in a court injunction, but then that was overruled in favor of industrialization. And the courts decided that, oh, no, we got to promote industry. So it wasn't the free market's fault. It was, you know, status thinking that says, oh, we, we know what's best. We can't have some homeowner and their property rights derailing our progress.
1: Well, you know what's what's more difficult. Is it more difficult for a large firm to try to infiltrate the judicial system, or to try to lobby a legislature, or to lobby a um, a, a bureaucracy that's going to create in in practice many of these regulations? So a lot of times, bureauc- uh, bureaucracies like the EPA are essentially infiltrated with the individuals who are uh, either just fresh out of that industry that they're regulating or hope to have jobs in that industry after they leave the regulatory bureaucracy. So, um, yeah, large influential firms are going to try to exert their influence however they can, wherever they can, politically. One of the ways to try to avoid that is to make that job more difficult. I mean, court systems tend to be a little more resilient or resistant because you've got uh, a Mm -hmm. more uh, fragmented uh, localized kind of system as opposed to a bureaucracy like the EPA that's governing the entire nation. So, mm-hmm. uh, why not, why make that job easier for these large firms by telling them all, all you need to do to influence, um, I- influence, uh, pollution standards is, is, um, make sure that you get into the EPA really good.
0: Yeah. Yep. Um, and I know, too, it was funny when I was doing this research on the fracking stuff. So the EPA came out with a study on fracking that the the first draft, at least, had a pretty sweeping statement, like, we find no evidence of systematic uh, it, harm to drinking water supply, something like that. And then they backed off of it. And the the left-wing critics were, and this came out under the Obama administration, too, by the way, and the left-wing critics were saying, oh, yeah, the EPA is, in, you know, behind the scenes, they're being pressured from on high to downplay the harms of fracking because they want to really hit coal. In other words, they, they want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so they know fracking is good because it, you know, it promotes natural gas development. And that's good for the Obama administration's understandable goal of reducing carbon dioxide emissions. But gee, that, that means they're, you know, since now they're pro-natural gas, they're kind of looked the other way. So anyway, whether that's true or not, I just thought that was interesting that even they were kind of admitting. That oh, gee, a report on fracking coming from the Obama EPA is downplaying the harms because you know they've got these ulterior motives.
1: Right. And you know this, this maybe this is a good place to kind of segue into this the, the concept of, of the lesser of the of the two evils. So supposing that you that, that all sources of energy have some kind of uh, emissions, some kind of side effect on other people that's going to be harmful. It's going to create some kind of uh, adverse effect on, on neighbors. Um, if you have a court-based system, you can actually make sure that the many of these, at least, are compensated for, uh, right? So you build a, a power plant of whatever variety, uh, natural gas or coal or whatever. Um, if you've got a system of, of um, uh, court-based uh, nuisance precedent in place, then you build that power plant and you recognize you're going to have to compensate anybody that you damage or you're going to have to prevent your, your damage. Uh, mm-hmm. You're going to have to self-restrain, in other words. You go back to energy sources that we had in, um, in the past and they tended to be worse, tended to be more damaging environmentally, more side effects on individuals. We, if, if you look at air pollution, if you look at water pollution, the concentrations of pollutants have been declining in the United States and in many other countries, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that we've got a an economy that's fostering growth to at least some extent. We've got an economy that's more market oriented. Uh, we actually, in the last uh, Economic uh, Freedom of the World report, went up several points. I don't know if you noticed that, but we I think we were down to number twelve or fifteen, and we came back up in recent in the most recent report. As we pursue that economic freedom, our economy is going to grow. As it grows, we're going to end up using energy sources that tend to be cleaner and less damaging. We're going to see all kinds of environmental benefits as a result of that.
0: Yeah, I know. I've seen things like if you graph uh, carbon emissions per unit of real output or you know real GDP or something like that's dropping across the board. And it you know so yeah, the level of the U.S. was higher than in Germany or something. But I mean it. They're still coming down, and China was way higher, but that's dropping like a stone. You know things like that. So, yeah, there's there's issues like it. it, Now, is this is this what people mean by an environmental Kuznets curve?
1: Yeah. So this is this is the environmental Kuznets curve, which is based on an earlier relationship that Simon Kuznets pointed out between economic inequality and growth. But adapting that same kind of idea to environmental issues, we've seen that for many kinds of pollutants. Initially, as an economy gets wealthier, those pollutant concentrations increase. In other words, the environment looks like it's getting worse. And then as you continue to see that economy grow, that'll level off, it'll peak, and then it'll start to fall. We're actually past that peak for many pollutants in the United States, well past it. I was uh, talking actually to a class earlier today about that, and I showed them a picture of Pittsburgh in the 1940s, and you can barely see two blocks down the street from all the haze and everything. And then a picture of Pittsburgh today, which of course is much cleaner air. Mm -hmm. I had a roommate in college whose father worked in Pittsburgh uh, as a white collar worker. He'd take a spare shirt with him to change into at lunchtime because his first shirt had gotten so dingy from all the air pollution. No, you know, we, we figured out better ways to produce steel. We figured out better ways to uh, produce GDP other than some of these highly polluting processes that we tend to associate with economic growth.
0: Okay. So the idea is like, yeah, if you go back to the year 1700, there's not going to be, the, the air is going to be relatively clean because they don't have heavy industry. But then you see, you know, a, a newly industrialized, city like london or whatever yeah it's going to be real sooty but then as they advance even further then all of a sudden it gets clean so then it's like oh it's beijing that has the dirty air it's not london or or san francisco um so what so and i guess one way economists describe this is they say oh the the richer we get the more we'll able to afford the luxury of a clean environment you know clean air or whatever that's expensive other things equal you know there's different competing desires we want to have cars we want to have nice houses health care blah 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 and environmental quality is one of those goods and so the richer we are the more we can afford that and, so, and that's why you know first world countries tend to be cleaner some of the dirtiest places were you know so, so cities in the soviet union for example um so given all that in terms of the the technological constraints and whatever but suppose the critic says okay sure but we've had environmental regulation to to get us there. So yeah, in your wild West and cap world, there would be the people would have the ability to afford clean air, but they wouldn't have it if we didn't have, you know, the federal government, the clean air act.
1: Well, all you got to do is look at what's, what was happening with pollution before the EPA, before uh, we Mm -hmm. started to make this switch from a court-based system, uh, respecting property rights and allowing people to sue based on nuisance or, or, uh, torts. When when we go back to the pre-command uh, and control regulation era, we still see those same kinds of things taking place where we're seeing economic growth and environmental improvement. And one of the, one of the examples of this would be, if you go back to the 1840s, if you were going to light your home in the 1840s, you'd probably do it with a whale oil lamp, right? So you've got fleets going out around the world all the way to practically to the Antarctic looking for whales, as whales are more and more scarce, it becomes harder and more expensive to harvest these whales and get enough whale oil to feed the, the desire for lighting in the developing world. So whale oil prices are rising and rising. And then uh, somebody named John D. Rockefeller comes along with a couple of his friends and says, well, you know, we, we figured out a way to refine petroleum into kerosene which is a really good substitute for whale oil and sell it for a whole lot less than whale oil cost so i tell my students sometimes you know john d rockefeller probably did more to save the whales than greenpeace ever did mm-hmm. and that's that's a function of the price system being allowed to work as a resource becomes more and more exhausted then uh, people start casting around for alternatives and in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, that was whale oil. Now we're switching to uh, we 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 switched to kerosene, and then later to something even cleaner, which was electricity.
0: Yeah, and also too, like in terms of you know clean because I'm there's this recent thing I just wrote a piece for uh, the Institute for Energy Research on the so-called Clean Future Act that some Democrats are pushing, within Clean's an acronym, and and then there I was you know I was mentioning okay, well in the U.S. when they went from Horses to cars that made cities cleaner because now there's not manure piling up, you know. So it's better to have you know colorless, odorless gas emission, you know, natural or uh, carbon dioxide emissions. That's, in a sense, cleaner than having horse manure piled up. And then also too, in certain underdeveloped regions right now or developing regions, whatever you want to call them, electrification. So yeah, the the homes moving away from burning wood or animal dung to heat the home. Even if they're getting electrified, hooked up to a coal fired power plant, that's clearly better for the local air than, you know, burning wood inside your house or whatever to, to provide heat. So, again, oh, yeah. with all these things, it's, it's, you, pe- people need to realize what was the alternative, what were people doing beforehand before the economic progress kicked in?
1: Sure. And if you look at, at some countries in, in lesser developed parts of the world, one of the major health hazards is indoor air pollution. Because you're cooking indoors, you're hovering over this little fire that might be charcoal or, or dried animal dung or uh, wood or biomass from your crops or something like that. You're, you're ingesting all of this into your lungs. Uh, small children are inhaling this as a major cause of health problems. Millions of people worldwide Dying from illnesses related to this kind of indoor air pollution. So, yeah, if you substitute a coal fired power plant for this uh, source of cooking fuel and heating and so forth in their homes, you're getting a lot of pollution from that coal fired power plant. But think about all the many homes now that are, that effectively have cleaner air and less of a health risk because of that uh, of that coal-fired power plant so looking at the in the entire picture I think is is critical here
0: mm-hmm. okay well we're running up here on the on the clock so I know you wanted to mention um, the quarterly journal of Austrian economics and then there's a like a, a reboot of the journal of libertarian studies do you want us to tell us about that
1: yeah so one of the most exciting projects that I've been working on in the last year uh, I went down to the Mises Institute for uh, sabbatical um, in the spring of of 2019, and that allowed me to, to focus on several projects. One of which was to um, rework the kind of back office processes of the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics and make it a lot more professional, a lot more efficient. We're getting faster turnarounds for authors who submit to the journal. Um, I think our readership is going is to see, has already seen some significant advantages. And also, the Institute decided that. Uh, we should restart the, or revive the Journal of Libertarian Studies. And so I worked on that as well as kind of a compatible process. We use the same kind of back office uh, um, processes for that. And it's been really exciting to see that get up and moving because this is an, a journal that was started originally by Murray Rothbard in 1977. And it's got a great history to it. If you go back, uh, you can see all kinds of of the brightest lights in libertarianism that published in the JLS. And now we've got a system which will, I think allow it to be a lot more um, um, publicized and allow authors to get their ideas out in a way that previously, if you're a libertarian and you're looking around for places to publish something like you were mentioning on Bombavik or something that Mm -hmm. maybe it's, it's not as interesting to a mainstream journal, but it would be fascinating for us and for our readership and we're really excited about what's happening we're getting some good staff on board to really make these both of these journals move forward and, and i i think we're just going to see some amazing things in the next several years with that
0: okay great yeah so i'll put links folks to all this stuff that we've mentioned including to see how you know you can read or submit to the journals so it's bob 101 for all the links for this interview my guest has been Tim Terrell, Tim, thanks so much for being a part of The Bob Murphy Show.
1: Thanks very much, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.